Hello everyone and welcome to Dairy Pod with me, Rory McDonald from the Dairy Australia Farm Team. Here at Dairy Pod, we strive to bring you the most respected names in the dairy industry, and today's guest certainly fits that bill. Professor Jeff Dahl is a dairy scientist from the University of Florida who is recognised internationally as one of the world's leading experts on dry cow heat stress. A former president of the American Dairy Science Association, Jeff has published many research papers during his career on the topic of dairy cow heat stress. Despite such high achievements in the academic arena, Jeff also works directly with several farmers and has a great knack for explaining his research in simple terms. Jeff has toured Australia previously, back in 2018, when he spoke to farmers about how much milk they might be losing by failing to keep their cows cool in the dry period, as well as a longer term negative effects on heat stressed cows. We caught up with Jeff via Zoom recently, where despite him cheering on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl only the night before, he was more than happy to chat to us about his research work. Welcome along to the podcast, Jeff. All right. Well, thanks, Rory. I appreciate the invitation to come and talk to you about some of the work that we're doing here in Florida. So uh, just before we uh, get into the details, Jeff, it might be worth giving a bit of a background to your own professional background and your role at the University of Florida. Um, well, I uh, actually grew up on a, on a dairy farm uh, a little further north in Massachusetts, so a little uh, cooler winters than we experience here in, in Florida, and then kind of uh, bounced around uh, uh, doing my various uh, degrees and training. Um, and had a couple of faculty positions at uh, Maryland and Illinois before uh, landing here in Florida about 14 years ago. Um, so most of my work during my professional career is focused on uh, management during the dry period and uh, sort of environmental manipulation, particularly with lighting and photo period, and then also with uh, heat stress management over the last uh, few years. And uh, that's, that's what we're gonna talk about and focus on today. Can you give a bit of a background to Florida dairy systems, your typical dairy system, just for our listeners here that you know might not be quite used to what you're dealing with on a typical basis over there? Yeah, well, as you might expect, I mean, we're we're in a subtropical uh, environment here in, in most of Florida, uh, and we would have, I think, from a housing perspective, very similar sorts of housing to what you'd see throughout the U.S. with a freestall sort of system for for most of our cows. Um, typically, they're going to be sand bedded freestalls, and really the big difference between here and somewhere further north is that we don't have any sidewalls, uh, just because we have to make sure that we've got great ventilation and cooling and we don't need any sidewalls uh, for our, our barns uh, here in, in Florida. Um, so those cows are going to be on sand bedded stalls, um, sort of flush alleys mostly, some scraper alleys. Um, and then they're going to be milked two to three times a day in a, uh, a milking parlor, uh, milking, uh, milking shed, you might call it. And um, those animals are going to then be fed a uh, typically a uh, TMR. Um, it's going to consist primarily of corn silage uh, for the most part here, although we do uh, have obviously a fairly good supply of some byproducts here, citrus pulp being one of them, cottonseed, other things that you'd see you know, in the rest of the U.S. as well. Uh, so very, very similar in a lot of ways. And really the, the big difference is not so much how we uh, are affected by heat stress, but just how much heat stress we experience here in Florida. I guess the, the heat stress side of things then, Jeff, you, you started to focus a bit more on that um, over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, what, what was the first kind of aspects of, of dry cow heat stress in particular that, that, that piqued your interest that you wanted to actually look a bit more closely at? 
Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, a lot of my work has been related to management during the, the dry period and trying to make sure that we optimize their management so that they're more productive in that next lactation. And I think what we started to see, not just us, but obviously other folks that were working with dry cows, you know, they're, they're the idea had always been that we can just kind of put them on vacation for uh, six to eight weeks and we don't have to worry about them. We won't worry about their feed. We won't worry about anything else that, that we do with them. And we slowly came to the realization that we were shooting ourselves in the foot uh, by not paying more attention to those cows nutrition. And so, you know, for following on, well, we probably need to pay more attention to just more general aspects of housing and management uh, for those animals too, because, you know, that's, when you look at all the data, the most stressful time during the lactation cycle is when? Well, it's going to be right when we dry the cows off and right when she calves in. So between that, we have a fairly uh, stressful period for those cows. And so things that we can do to minimize nutritional stress, to minimize heat stress, to minimize behavioral stresses on those animals is going to be a positive. And that's kind of where we came in with, with heat stress because, um, you know, putting cows out on pasture uh, for that six to eight week period um, may not have as much of an effect as we go further north, although it's still there. It's just that, it, again, it's not as long a time period during the year that you're going to have that potential stressor. But here we're talking about nine months of potential heat stress. So almost our entire herd is potentially at risk for being heat stressed during the dry period. So that was part of the impetus for, for us moving into looking at some of these effects of, of heat stress on the dry cow. Um, just to clarify, the, the dry period, you define the dry period, I think, as the last six weeks before calving, six or seven weeks. So that, that includes what we would call the pre-calving transition period here as well. Yep. Yep. And, you know, people will use that transition period term here too. I mean, I've always, always uh, used the, the dry period definition as from the, the last time we milked that cow in one lactation to the first time we milk her in that next lactation. So it's going to be typically targeted between 45 and 60 days. So 60, six to eight weeks um, is what most people are targeting for a, a dry period. And that's what most of our studies have looked at. They've been done for the most part with second lactation animals and beyond for a 45 day or so dry period that we target. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess just to get into a bit of detail then of, of some of your results, uh, Jeff, um, you, you've, you've looked at the effects of that uh, heat stress uh, um, impact during that six week period, and whether it's the three weeks closest to calving or the first three or four weeks after you dry them off. And, and you found some interesting results in terms of the effect on milk yield in the next lactation. Yeah, I mean, we've done, you know, a series of studies now showing um, the effects of cooling those animals for the entire dry period. And it looks like it's between four and five liters a day improved production in that next lactation. And that's being, um, that's the result of improvements in mammary growth during that dry period, which set the cow up for more success in that next lactation. You know, those cows are also healthier from an immune status standpoint. So they do better in that next lactation. And one of the questions that we got a lot of times from producers was, well, do I, have to, do I have to cool them the whole dry period? Now, we've got all these things that we do from, a, again, a transition uh, management standpoint. We start to put cows on different feed. We start to include DCAD in the diet and adjust, make adjustments for that. Can I just cool them for the last half of that dry period and sort of realize the same benefits? 
So we actually looked at that where we took cows that were, they were cooled for the entire dry period or they were heat stressed for the entire dry period. And then each of those groups, we split them in half and transitioned the cows to the other treatment. So we ended up with four total groups on that study, cooled for the whole dry period, heat stressed for the whole dry period, heat stressed for the first three weeks and then cooled for the last three weeks of the dry period or cooled for the first three weeks and then heat stressed for the last three weeks. And long story short, the production responses in that next lactation were essentially the same for both of the groups that had heat stress for half of the dry period. Didn't matter if it was the first half or the second half and they weren't any different from the cows that were heat stressed for the whole dry period. So the only improvement in output for that next lactation was in the cows that were cooled for the entire dry period. So you know, our interpretation is we need to get those cows cooled for the entire dry period in order to realize the, the benefits on that next lactation. Yeah, and just um, to get a bit more detail there on, on the relativities of the differences between those groups. So, uh, you know, in total, say, how many liters would the cows that were, uh, were, were kept um, um, avoided any heat stress at all for the entire dry period. What, what was their you know, total output across the lactation or in terms of liters per day relative to the ones that were affected by the heat stress? In that study in particular, it was going to be, again, it's in that range, but it's in that four liters a day improvement in milk yield for that entire lactation. So because it's an effect on sort of mammary growth and their capacity for productivity in that next lactation, the improvements that we see are there from the beginning of lactation and look like they persist all the way out. We've gone as far as 40 plus weeks in lactation and we still see that those animals are doing better than the counterparts that would have been heat stressed during the dry period. So it's kind of a, a programming effect for that entire lactation. And you're looking at say, I'm guessing 42, 43 liters or something for the ones that weren't heat stressed versus 38, 39. Is that, is that the kind of a um, Ballpark yeah, it's, it's going to be particularly early lactation. Obviously, it's going to be in that range for sure. Yep. So that, that's a pretty significant gap. And there's a lot of milk there to be saved. Um, and even if our cows over here in Australia on, on pasture-based systems don't quite yield as high as some of the, the cows in, in, in your systems that we've talked about, you know, that relative difference is likely to still be there. Um, and would you say that that's the case regardless of the system? Yeah, I would, because actually some of the studies that have been done have, have really borne that out because, um, you know, there are a few studies in the literature that are a little older. One of them was done down here um, in the early 80s when they used to just put cows on pasture uh, when they were dry. And their comparison was providing them with shade versus not providing them with shade. And you see responses there uh, as well when those cows have shade and they were at a much lower level of, of production. And so the you know, the biology behind it, we think, is related to ultimately the effects on the placenta in those cows. And so that placenta not only provides for, you know, supportive growth of that developing calf, but also produces hormones that are going to influence mammary growth. And so we think that that's really where all of this is starting up. And it wouldn't matter if the cow was on pasture at a low, relatively lower level of production versus the cows that we have sort of in our, our uh, highly intensive systems. If they're heat stressed, you're still gonna have some placental dysfunction and sort of uh, what I'm gonna call wastage of, of energy that's gotta go towards getting rid of heat 
rather than into a productive purpose. It, are, were there any other uh, effects of the heat stress other than milk production? You know, when we talk about um, health um, traits throughout that lactation or, or, you know, lameness or mastitis, any of those type of things, uh, anything else showing up there, a difference? Yep. So we've, we've looked at sort of what I'll call test tube indicators of health and immune function. We see that the cows that were heat stressed during the dry period, there are definitely some influences of that heat stress directly on things like um, responses to vaccination and other things that we might be doing during the dry period that are, it's a negative effect. Um, and then in that next lactation, there are some persistent effects on immune status in the cows that were heat stressed previously. And some of that's borne out when we look at um, sort of effects of the season that animals might be dry in. So we made a comparison on one farm and a large number of cows of cows that were dry during summer months versus cows that were dry in the winter months. So relatively heat stressed and, and cooler because they were out on pasture during the dry period. And there we see that the cows that were dry during the summer months did have more mastitis. We had other sort of diseases that those animals were going to contract at a greater extent um, and their reproductive performance was poorer in that next lactation versus the cows that were cool, they were dry during the cooler months of the, summer, of the, the year. And you know, when you look at the production responses, they were similar to what we've seen with our controlled studies. So the cows that were dry during the coolest months of the year had lower incidence of the diseases that we'd expect. They had more milk production and yet they were more fertile. So they got bred sooner. So, yeah. so when we look at um, uh, residual effects in of, on, the, on the calf, so you know, obviously th these cows, these dry cows are late gestation. There's a, an unusual calf that's, that's you know, close to being born. Um, what are the effects on that calf? So the, there are some early life effects that, you know, people have, have seen these not just in dairy cattle, beef cattle, other species as well, right? When a dam is heat stressed, typically those calves are going to be um, smaller at birth. And so we see a lower birth weight. Part of that is because of what I talked about before, placental dysfunction, right? So you don't get as easy movement of, of nutrients uh, to that calf, um, but they're also gonna be born a few days earlier, right? So gestation length is going to be, be reduced. Um, what I like to tell people is that uh, I would not use this as a treatment for dystocia it's not really recommended uh, because none of the none of the other outcomes are going to be positive. <clears throat> so that calf is going to be smaller at birth. She's smaller at weaning. She's smaller at a year of life. And by that, I mean, she's smaller from a body weight perspective. When we've done some examination of um, stature in those animals, at least up to weaning, they are shorter. When they are heat stressed in utero, then they're compatriots that would have been from cooled dams. And we're actually looking at that right now to get a better handle on just when, you know, that, and I don't think they're ever going to be um, at a, at a sh we know at calving for the first time, those animals remain shorter. So I don't think they're ever gonna catch up. They do catch up from a body weight perspective later in life before that first calving, but that's gonna be probably more fat rather than lean growth. And that's gonna be a negative influence on eventually their production. Those calves are um, gonna have some challenges from an immune perspective. They do not 
have as efficient a transfer of immunoglobulin from colostrum as the calves that are born to cool dams. And we've shown that multiple times now. So there's definitely a, a negative influence on their capacity to take up Ig from colostrum. So their immune status is lower early in life. Um, they don't have as good a survivability in the herd, probably because of that. And we find that in their first lactation, they make less milk. And now we've gone on to show that they make less milk in their second lactation and in their third lactation versus their compatriots that would have been born to a cooled dam. And probably the, the biggest uh, negative impact is this is what we term, you know, an epigenetic effect. And so it's going to transfer to their next generation. So not only is that calf going to be at a lower level of productivity, her calves are going to suffer from it because this is one of those factors that's going to be influenced long-term and it's actually transgenerational. Um, one of the things I guess we, we should touch on this is those first calf heifers, the ones that have never cat, had a calf yet, don't have a dry period. What happens in late gestation to those animals when we cool them? And we have now just completed a study looking at that and the cows that were the heifers that were cooled for the last 60 days of gestation versus ones that were heat stressed. And by that, I mean, they were in a barn, a freestall barn, nice bedded stalls, but we didn't have fans and soakers on them. They did have shade, but the animals that had the fans and soakers for the last 60 days, lower body temperature, those animals produced about four liters more milk in their first lactation compared with the heifers that were heat stressed. So very similar to what we see in the, the mature cows um, in terms of the effect on those animals. So now folks are gonna have to start getting those animals into cooling conditions as well. Um, and I think we'll see more and more of that. Um, I would say if you look around the country, um, it is being um, you know, more and more folks are adopting uh, heat stress management of their dry cows. I think the last survey that I saw we had you know, probably more than half of the, the respondents indicated that they cooled their animals um, most of the time, uh, but they weren't always cooling them as effectively as I would think that they would need to, to, to really get that heat stress dampened down. I'd say about 20% of our producers, I'm not sure that's 20% of the cows, but 20% of our producers are probably across the US are cooling their dry cows. Yeah, yeah. And then I suppose that probably leads nicely into the next point. And it's more of a practical question. Well, what is the definition of a properly cooled dry cow? Yeah, well, I don't know that we ever get them 100% not heat stressed. And that's a that's something that my colleagues are always uh, sort of on to me about when I say, oh, those cows that are in that barn aren't heat stressed. Well, they're still probably heat stressed. We do see we see changes in body temperature throughout the day, even when we've got what we think is our best level of cooling. Um, but from a practical standpoint, you know, what we're going to look at is cow's respiration rates. You don't have to go through and do a body temperature measurement, anything like that. We've looked at that in the dry cows now and a number of studies. We kind of took all those data and, and did an analysis on it and showed that if we get to a respiration rate of 61, so if those cows are breathing 61 breaths per minute, they're starting to be heat stressed. That's, that's sort of the threshold for indicating those cows are heat stressed. 
well, what's normal? Eh, 35 to 40, right? So as we move up, those cows can, can deal with that heat stress or that increased heat and not have a problem. But once they hit that 61 and it only gets worse from there as we increase our temperature and humidity. And so we use temperature humidity index rather than just straight temperature because obviously the effects, the negative impacts of animals own ability to cool themselves as you increase humidity. Uh, we're looking at a THI of about 68 as being when cows are gonna start getting heat stressed. That's for lactating cows, but I don't think it's really much different for our uh, dry cows because that's about where we start to see that 61 breaths per minute for those animals to, to increase. Um, certainly a lactating cow, I would say if we're just using respiration rate, it's gonna be there or a little lower than that because those cows are gonna have higher levels of intake. They're gonna be producing more metabolic heat and they're probably gonna become stressed at a, even a little bit lower point than our cows that are dry. As a, a small uh, clarification on the, on the respiratory rate or the, the breaths per minute, you, you measure that off a cow that's standing in, you know, or maybe lying down Yep. What I recommend people do is just kind of go out and, you know, you got your stopwatch on your phone. You just run your stopwatch for 30 seconds and look at their flank movements. And that's going to give you an indication of their respiration rate. Multiply it by two and you've got breaths per minute of a cow lying down, a cow standing up. I mean, we do it. It's very non-invasive and it's very easy to do just walking through a barn. You do that with five cows in a pen of 40 cows and you got a pretty good idea of what the general level of, of heat strain is on those animals. Have you seen much side effects uh, of, of, of dry cow heat stress on fertility? I know it's probably a challenging thing to measure. Yeah, it is. And you know, a couple of points there. I mean, I already mentioned that that study that we did where we looked at the season that the cows were, were dry in because in order to get the numbers that you need for fertility types or reproduction sorts of measures, we can't do that in a controlled setting typically. Um, so there we saw an improvement in those animals fertility from uh, services uh, per conception and a little bit earlier breeding uh, and, and settling of those animals um, that were dry during a cooler point of the year versus the, the hotter time of the year. The other thing that goes along with that is those cows that were dry during a cooler time of the year were making more milk. So if anything, we would have expected their reproduction to suffer, and yet they had better reproductive performance than the other cows did. And I suspect that that's the type of thing that we would see with our controlled studies if we had the number of animals needed to really, really look at that, because um, we have not had the experience where we uh, suddenly lose all the cows that are uh, on one of our treatments or the other because she was not able to, to breed back, even though they're at that higher level of productivity. Those cows are generally in better health for all the reasons that I talked about already. And so they're able to manage that transition into lactation and then that next transition into reproductive performance um, better than the cows that were actually heat stress, even though they're producing less milk. They've got some other challenges going on from that earlier heat stress during the dry period. For farmers who might have, you know, more extensive pasture-based systems in, in Australia, um, you know, shade is obviously something I've heard to speak about before as a big kind of factor. Is there a kind of, um, 
a time frame that you can, can you cool the cows off for like an hour in the hottest part of the day and, and somehow limit the, the negative effects of heat stress in that way to even an extent, even if it's not quite the same as having them in a, in a barn with, you know, coolers and sprinklers, uh, you know, can you half do it even and, and try and get half the benefits if it's a challenge? Yeah, for sure. I think that whatever we can do to get them cooled off as much as we can, it's going to be a positive. I mean, I've been on and seen it very used very effectively down in Mexico, for example. They'll bring the dry cows into these big sort of, uh, well, it's essentially their holding pen where they cool cows before they enter the milking parlor. But they'll bring them from their uh, holding pens into this sort of place where they can be soaked and get them soaking wet and then let them move back to their, their uh, normal pen to get those cows cooled off. And they do that three or four times a day and effectively drive that temperature down in, in those cows and see positive responses. Now, that's in a little more arid environment than we would have here in Florida. I think it would work here in Florida, but as we get into a drier environment, as I saw in a lot of places there in Australia, I think that uh, that would work very effectively. Um, Obviously, we don't want the animals walking a whole lot more during the day. So we want to sort of keep that from, from taking up all the time and taking away from the other things that they need to do. But you also have to remember that we're not milking them two or three times a day. So they're not having that sort of time taken out of their budget uh, during the day. So there should be some room to get those cows cooled off, however we might be able to do it. Yeah, and obviously shade. Shade is something that's a, um, a, a really good thing in, in all cases for, for all cows, even if you've got a shelter belt along the side of a paddock or something. Uh, you know, Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as we can get them shade, the only sort of caveat to that, obviously, is with some of these permanent shades, we want to make sure that we don't create a mud hole that those cows are sort of uh, laying in most of the day because of that. So if we can have movable shade or if we've got sort of multiple shade areas where the animals can actually move around too, um, that's going to be ideal. Well, thanks, Jeff. I think we, we've covered off on, on quite a lot there in the, in the podcast. Um, was there any uh, other particular aspects that you were keen to talk about? No, I think we've kind of covered all the new stuff uh, that uh, we uh, have done over the last few years, and uh, hopefully it'll be of uh, use to some of your producers down there to try and implement this. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time as well. So I know you're a big uh, Tom Brady fan and uh, you're happy uh, after, after last night's Super Bowl. Uh, so uh, we do appreciate you taking the time to get up and, and have a chat to us uh, today. Yeah, well, luckily this is a little later in the day for me. So I was able to recover from uh, all the celebration from the Buccaneers winning the Super Bowl last night. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, good job. Well, thanks, um, Jeff. And um, yeah, hopefully we look forward to getting you back to Australia at some point in the future as well. Sure. Well, anytime. Uh, well, I guess not right now, but uh, any time that they'll allow for uh, someone to leave this country and enter your country, that's fine. Once again, thanks to Jeff for giving us his time and sharing that fascinating research. There's plenty of information on cool cows and heat stress at dairyaustralia.com.au or have a chat to your regional extension officer about strategies for minimizing the negative effects of the heat on your herd during the hot Australian summers. That's us done for another episode. Just in case you haven't subscribed yet, you can find other Dairy Pod episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Stay cool, everyone, and bye for now.